by the middle of September 1940, it was obvious to everyone, except perhaps the great British public, that the Germans could not invade Britain. It doesn't look as though Hitler had ever wanted to. But the Germans badly needed Britain out of the war. Now the pressure was on the Luftwaffe, the German air force, to bomb the British into submission. The myth of a German invasion, however, lived on. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. On Sunday the 15th of September 1940, Churchill was at the Battle of Britain Bunker. That's HQ of 11 Group Fighter Command in Uxbridge. It was the heart of the RAS brilliant system of communication and coordination. This time, Churchill brought his wife, Clemmie. Welcoming them in, Air Vice Marshal Keith Park, a New Zealander hurricane pilot, was faintly apologetic. He said, I don't know whether anything will happen today. In Churchill's words, they descended to the theatre-like room, he says, about 60 feet across and with two storeys, and, quotes, took their seats in the dress circle. Then all hell broke out. Within minutes, a violent battle overhead was being played out on the gigantic blackboard, with the six fighter stations and their sub-columns of squadrons represented by coloured lights. The Germans had attacked with 300 planes, flying in formation two miles wide. Park called up squadrons, first from Biggin Hill, then Northolt, then Kenley and Hornchurch. Soon there were 15 squadrons of hurricanes in the air and eight of Spitfires. The map table was like a scrum. During an interminable 90-minute period that afternoon, 28 RAF squadrons were airborne. Just when there were no more squadrons available to call, and when many British fighters were at their most vulnerable, refuelling on the ground, the German onslaught miraculously stopped. Churchill later remembered it simply appeared, quotes, the enemy were going home. It had been the worst day of fighting all summer, and it's still commemorated as Battle of Britain Day. The day before, 14th of September 1940, Hitler had given Hermann Goering, chief of the Luftwaffe, four more days to break the British. Goering had thrown every plane he had at the RAF, but it had appeared to get him nowhere. And on the 15th of September, the Germans lost 60 planes to the RAF's 26. Two days later, Hitler formally halted preparations for Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of Britain. It was simply not worth wasting any more time and money on contingency plans that were manifestly impractical. But, and here's the extraordinary thing, the Führer didn't sign an order to disband the invasion forces. General Holder, chief of the German general staff, noted that Hitler explained that signing orders would mean, quote, cancellation of our plans would not remain a secret. It would ease the strain on the enemy's nerves and consequently must not be ordered now. Apparently, Hitler believed that if the forces on the Channel Coast were actually disbanded, his bluff would have been called. And so the psychological effect, the threat of invasion, which was what had always mattered to Hitler, would be gone. So after the 17th of September 1940, Sea Lion was dead in the water, but it lingered on as a kind of wraith. 
1949, the Americans discovered that after that date, 17th September 1940, the Germans had launched a deliberate operation of propaganda to prop up Sea Lion's salty corpse. So in October 1940, the chief of staff of the propaganda branch of the German Supreme Command received orders to put together, quotes, a simulation of an intended German landing operation in England. Not even the army, navy or Luftwaffe ranks still stationed along the channel, apparently still working towards an ambitious amphibious assault, were allowed to know that they were preparing for an attack that was never going to happen. Above all, the propaganda chief was instructed, quotes, the British must continue to believe that we are preparing an attack on a broad front. Well, the bluff continued into 1941, by which time it had been given the rather rakish codename Operation Highfish. Shark. Commanding officers were personally handed a sealed envelope, in which was simply a note. Highfish is a feint. The reason the Germans kept Shark thrashing rather feebly about on the Channel Coast was not so much to frighten the British into surrender. The Germans had pretty much given up all hope of that months before. It was meant as a cover-up. It was all intended, one of the generals remembered, quotes, to deceive foreign news services about German troops moving eastward. The most important thing was that the British convinced their ally Joseph Stalin that German forces were faced west and were not about to launch an attack into Stalin's Soviet Union. But as an exercise in deception, Shark was pretty toothless. British intelligence had worked out straight away that the threat of invasion was over. The day Hitler had effectively called the invasion off, that's the 17th of September 1940, Churchill had told the Commons in secret session that the Germans were building a huge flotilla. Quotes, if this is all pretense and stratagem to pin us down here, it's been executed with surprising thoroughness and on a gigantic scale. He'd warned MPs to expect landings across the islands. Of course, Churchill had been making dire warnings like this for months, even though privately he didn't believe a word of them. They were good for morale, for keeping the army in trim, and above all, for appealing to help from the Americans. But later that same day, 17th of September, intelligence informed Churchill that the Germans were dismantling their equipment at the Dutch airfields and the chief of Churchill's air staff confided that he understood that sea line was off, at least for that year. The very next day, 18th of September 1940, despite a new assessment from naval intelligence that quotes everything was ready for the invasion, Churchill secretly asked for the home forces to be stood down from their high alert. But the merciless bombing of British cities continued and everyone's nerves were understandably on edge. On the 21st of September 1940, Agent A-54 suddenly reported that the invaders would land at Dover. Now, Agent A-54 was Paul Tumel, a mole deep in the Abwehr, German military intelligence, who reported to the British, or more precisely, reported to the Czech government in exile, who then reported to the British. He'd sent messages through before that an invasion was on the way. But this time, Churchill was shaken. and 18th of September, Churchill had received good intelligence that the Germans had stood their invasion forces down. But on the 21st of September, new intelligence came through that a German force was, at that very moment, on its way across the Channel. 
Well, Churchill's assistant private secretary, Jock Colville, who didn't know about the new intelligence, wrote in his diary that the Prime Minister kept mysteriously ringing up the Admiralty to ask about the threat of fog. Churchill wrote to the military assistant secretary to the War Cabinet. Fog, he said, throws air forces out of action, baffles our artillery, prevents organised naval attack and specially favours the infiltration tactics by which the enemy will most probably seek to secure his lodgments. But of course the invasion didn't materialise and Churchill quickly recovered his calm, which was fortunate because the next day, 22nd of September, a telegram came from Roosevelt warning that the invaders would land at three o'clock that afternoon. At first Churchill laughed it off and then he felt he should double-check by ringing Anthony Eden, Secretary of State for War, who just happened to be staying on the south coast. Then Eden took a walk and rang Churchill back. It was wet and windy, most unsuitable weather, he reported, for invasions. The Germans would be seasick. It turned out that wires had been crossed mid-Atlantic and that the US president had meant the invasion not of Britain, but of Indochina. That afternoon, at three o'clock, the Japanese occupied Saigon. On 25th and 26th of September 1940, and again in October and November, the British filled four rusty old ships with explosives and tried to send them drifting into Calais and the other German embarkation ports. They were meant to explode and sink the remaining German barges still tied up there. Well, it would have been a fabulous reenactment of Drake and the Spanish Armada of 1588, when the English scattered the Spanish with eight wooden ships they set ablaze ran in on tide and wind, cannon firing, to the Spanish fleet at anchor in Calais Harbour. We'll revisit that story another time at History Café. But in 1940, the old vessels were so old and so rusty that none of them made it more than a few miles from the English coast. Apparently, Churchill never shared with Colonel Allenbrook, the man he'd put in charge of British home defence, his conviction that the Germans could never have invaded nor did he share with him the intelligence that Hitler had called Operation Sea Lion off. We know this because Brooke was still confiding to his illegal diary that the Germans were about to arrive on the 17th of October 1940, when some of the German barges had already returned to Riverwork. Indeed, the colonel was insisting that an invasion might still materialise in July 1941. Well, he seems to have been about the only senior officer who still believed it. By that time, everyone knew that the Germans were already miles across the Soviet border. The last thing they, or any serious army commander, would have done is to invade Britain as well. It was perhaps not Alan Brooke's finest hour. We'll see him being much more effective as a young artillery officer on the Somme when we examine that extraordinary and much misunderstood moment in British history at another history cafe. The question here was, however, whether seeing off the threat of German invasion had been, in Churchill's ringing verdict, Britain's finest hour, or whether his rhetoric created a myth that covers up a truth about 1940 the British don't really want to hear. The British always imagined the summer of 1940 as a battle in the air. It was a victory for the few, for the flyers of the RAF. They calculate that the Battle of Britain stretched from the 10th of July until the 31st of October 1940. Figures for pilots killed in action are contested. The RAF itself suggests it lost 544 pilots, one in six of those who'd fought in the battle. Even so, the RAF's victory over the Luftwaffe looks clear enough. 
According to historian Peter Calvacaresi, in the period of the fiercest aerial fighting, up to the 6th of September, quotes, except on one day, German losses of aircraft of all types exceeded British losses. Now, the British mostly believed that the battle was about denying the Germans air superiority and in that way preventing an invasion. Well, we've seen that the battle was in fact about whether the British would be bombed into surrender without an invasion. And in those terms, the RAF and the long-suffering British public, led by their dogged Prime Minister, won the Battle of Britain by a very long way. But the Battle of Britain was not just about the RAF. The myth that it was grew up that same summer, while it was still going on. As the writer Peter Fleming recalled, the British public in 1940 was already irrationally anxious about invasion from the air and strangely complacent about the Royal Navy's quiet guard. The RAF had also rather unfairly come in for criticism over its role in the Dunkirk evacuation, and Churchill may have felt it important to redress the balance for the sake of his airmen's morale. Besides, it was not only in his words their finest hour, but in many ways Churchill's too. And it is no surprise that he sustained the myth in his own 1949 account of the battle. He said, Our fate now depended upon victory in the air. Now, in several respects, this traditional account, wrapped up in the drama of the air battle, seriously underplays the British achievement. Defeating the air would, in itself, have been catastrophic, and the RAF's defence was beyond heroic. But it was the Royal Navy's domination of the Channel, not the RAF's success in the air, that in practice ruled a German invasion out. And in the background, British intelligence not only skillfully infiltrated and misinformed the German military, but also enabled Churchill and the Chiefs of Staff correctly to calculate that an invasion was never likely to come, and that British forces were more usefully deployed elsewhere. At the same time, Churchill's rhetoric and skillful diplomacy kept the Americans on side and began to win the long battle to get them to join the fight against the Nazis. Britain's refusal to surrender in 1940 was, in this sense, not only a moment of extraordinary national courage and noble purpose, I don't find ourselves saying that very often, but a much more profound and complete victory than the air battle alone. From the middle of October 1940, Hermann Goering, the Luftwaffe chief, lost interest in the bombing campaign. His signals officer found him ringing his wife to say he was on the cliffs at Calais watching his planes heading for England. But he was, in fact, in the Paris Ritz. He spent much of his time in Berlin and, on the 14th of November that year, went on leave until January. For much of 1941, he spent more time collecting art, stolen from Jewish owners and occupied territories, than on the Luftwaffe. An air of failure hung around him and his pilots. But there is another side to the argument, one the British are understandably reluctant to face. But the Battle of Britain was not quite as clear a victory as the British usually suppose. Operation Sea Lion was not strategically ineffective. As chief of the German operations staff, Alfred Jodl, set out in a memo to the Army High Command on the 13th of August 1940, the Germans and their Italian allies were making plans that summer to attack Gibraltar and Egypt and release Britain's naval stranglehold on the Mediterranean. Courageously, Churchill sent three regiments, perhaps 5,000 men, and 154 tanks to Egypt. But however convinced Churchill might have been that Sea Lion was a bluff, he couldn't afford to back his hunch too far home defence had to be secure just in case. So Sea Lion did a good job pinning down Colonel Brook, along with 29 divisions and eight brigades, perhaps a quarter of a million men in Britain. They were admittedly neither well trained nor equipped, but could they have been spared, they were badly needed for the defence of any number of other places. 
In his memo of the 13th of August 1940, Jodl also mentioned that the German U-boat campaign was attacking British supplies across the Atlantic. Now, Operation Sea Lion very successfully kept dozens of Royal Navy ships cooped up in home waters, exposing the Atlantic convoys to attack. On the 1st of July, Churchill had noted that the defence of Britain took priority and, quote, losses in the Western approaches must be accepted, meanwhile. Merchant shipping losses, in fact, rose fast. In May 1940, ships totalling 48,000 tonnes had been sunk. And in June 1940, it jumped to 284,000 and the figures peaked at 352,000 in October, when finally the destroyers and cruisers on invasion duty were released. And it was the U-boats that did the damage. The Germans were correct in calculating that U-boat pressure on British supplies was an effective way of preventing Britain from taking an active role in the European war. Without a safe supply route across the Atlantic, Britain's ability to wage war was limited. And nor was the British victory in the air quite as clear-cut as the traditional story would have us believe. The British, taking their cue from Churchill, always separate the Battle of Britain from the Blitz. It's always been important to the Brits to be able to claim a clear victory in the air in 1940 and to distinguish it from the long agony of the bombing that followed in the dark months until May 1941 and beyond. But this is confusing, since the two actually overlap. The London Blitz traditionally runs from the first bombing of London on the 7th of September 1940 until the 21st of May 1941, And yet the air battle is considered to have lasted from the 10th of July until the 31st of October 1940, with the Battle of Britain Day on the 15th of September. In Germany, by contrast, the air battle over Britain is not regarded as even beginning until the Luftwaffe launched its Adlertag, Eagle Day attack, on the 13th of August 1940. And it's then thought to have continued all the way to May 1941. For the Luftwaffe, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz were a single campaign, a grimly sustained attempt to force Britain out of the war, first by clearing a path through the skies and then by bombing British weapons production and infrastructure. And the unvarnished fact is that between August 1940 and May 1941, German planes were systematically able to bomb British manufacturing, shipbuilding and command centres with 76 consecutive nights of bombing over London except for three, and raids which spread from the south coast to Belfast and the Clyde. Now, this had been Goering's primary objective from the start. His fighter's job had never been to protect Operation Sea Lion, but his bombers on their way to attacking British factories. Well, at first it was a failure. In the first six weeks after 7th September 1940, the Luftwaffe lost one in three of its bombers. But after the 20th of October, the Germans switched almost completely to nighttime bombing and the RAF was able to do little about it. Luftwaffe raids over London after that date suffered only a 1% loss rate. Statistics for one German bomber squadron, KG-55, show that in eight months of night bombing, 1940-41, only 10 of its aircraft even caught sight of an RAF fighter. While the British had some hidden successes, they worked out how to bend and distort the radio beams Germans used to guide their bombers to their targets. But for many of the German planes, finding the target at night was now easy. Whether they had radio guidance or not, London's fires were visible from France. And British morale was never as high as Churchill wanted everyone to believe. 
From the 15th of October 1940, he was reluctantly persuaded to shift cabinet business to the cramped and airless, and unfortunately far from bomb-proof, underground war rooms built nearby. And above ground, crime flourished. Some air raid wardens turned out to be burglars, looting bombed businesses. One East End trader early in 1941 reckoned shopkeepers lost much more from theft than from the bombing. The vicar of a church at Elephant and Castle organised teams to recover bodies after air raids before thieves could steal their wallets. When the ballroom at London's Café de Paris was hit in 1941, jewellery was literally ripped from bodies by so-called rescuers. Historian Juliet Gardner has shown how the working classes got the roughest deal because they lived or worked, quote, near factories or the docks and often in houses not very well built. They felt they suffered a lot and the government owed them. The worst raids were sometimes deliberately not reported. When Hull lost 85% of its buildings, its people were incensed to see only the destruction of Coventry on the cinema newsreels. Looking across the channel, the German General Halder noted on the 24th of October 1940, after a conversation between his chief and Hitler about the bombing of Britain, there is a chance that this might force her to give in. Well, British manufacturing proved impressively resilient to the relentless bombing. But how much British manufacturing might have achieved without the drain and distraction of the bombing is very difficult to say. And even if the British would not quit, crucially for the German war effort, the destruction of their ports and factories effectively prevented them taking a forward role in the European war. Churchill's much-talked-about move onto the offensive now looked a long way off, at least in Europe. British weren't even able to make an attack on the occupied Channel Islands until 1943, and then it failed. So far as the war in Europe was concerned, Britain was for many months effectively rendered inactive, and that had been, in Yerdl's words, exactly what the Germans had intended or exactly what the Germans had hoped for. So on the 22nd of June 1941, Hitler's armies were able to invade the Soviet Union more or less completely free of interference from Britain or from anyone else to the West. And that, after all, had been the whole purpose of the bizarre Sea Lion campaign. For its part in pinning the British down, Goering's Luftwaffe had, as it turned out, done enough. There would be no Allied landing in Europe until 1944, and then it was led by the Americans. By that time, thousands of miles to the east, the Soviets already had the German army on the run. The long-term damage to the British economy was almost, perhaps completely, incalculable. Britain was never able to resume the international place she'd occupied before. Within just 20 years of 1940, most of her empire was gone. It would probably have happened anyway, but the months of Luftwaffe destruction only speeded it up. So, perhaps we should declare the Battle of Britain a draw. It would be heresy in Britain to say so. Most Brits protest that the Germans' attempt to invade was stopped in its tracks. But this had never truly been about an unlikely, impractical invasion. It had always been about whether the Luftwaffe could bomb Britain out of the war. Well, it couldn't. It didn't even come close. But the damage it caused weakened Britain horribly. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.